Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchis, the laws of Mitame, those who bring about defilement of Mishkab or Moshev, of items that people sleep on, such as cots or beds or Moshev chairs or saddles. <clears throat> and over the past nine chapters, we learned many details in this category of impurity. We're now going to segue into a whole different category. And that is just to give you a little bit of an introduction. As time went on, and people and life changed, and difficulties arose, there arose a whole section of people who were simply not knowledgeable in the laws of Torah. Now, even today, when people are knowledgeable in the laws of Torah, most people have no idea about the laws of purity and impurity, because by and large, all Beis Hamikdash purity and impurity law, all Holy Temple purity and impurity law, are not practiced today. But even back then, when they were practiced, they were so complex and so tedious that the average unlearned person had no idea how to truly observe it. So two classes developed within the Jewish people. The class of people who are simple, earth people, the expression is Am Ha'oretz, people of the soil, farmers, people who devoted themselves to making a living. And then there were the scholars. The scholars knew the tedious, detailed laws of purity and impurity. The simple folks simply didn't know. Therefore, they could not be trusted to maintain ritual purity and impurity. And as we know by now, because we're almost through book one of the two books of purity, it's not a simple thing to maintain ritual purity. So this will help us understand <clears throat> the upcoming chapters. Aleph 1, Am Ha'oretz, an unlearned person. Literally, people of the land, common people, <coughs> who generally devote themselves to making a living, <coughs> to earthly matters, <laughs> Even though the person is 100% Jewish. The Yashnei Betayro Mitzvah, he does his best to observe the teachings of Torah and the practices of God's commandments, but he simply doesn't know. We have to assume that this person does not maintain ritual purity. So for our purposes, for based on English law, for Truma law, we have for holy food law, for sacred food law, we have to assume that he is in a state of defilement or impurity. Furthermore, we know defilement carries over to the garments. Garments would also be immersed in a mikvah back then. And his garments, Midras, would be considered impure. The word Midras means an article which Ezov, or Ezova, or Anida, or Yoledes, any one of these categories of impurity, would impart impurity to. <clears throat> so not only the person can become impure, but garments can also become impure. For the purpose of ritual purity, if one wants to engage in an act which requires <coughs> ritual purity, which acts require ritual purity. Indulging in a sacrifice, participating in a sacrifice, going to the base of Middash, for Kohanim and his household, consuming truma. The regular guy is considered in a state of assumed defilement. And therefore, for example, his garments, which we assume are defiled, if they touch food and drink, then as we did learn, as we will learn, these garments can convey <coughs> impurity to food and drink. Furthermore, we learned about this earthenware vessel law. If this person touched an earthenware vessel from its internal dimension, the person put his hand inside or the garments inside, because we learned that earthenware vessels do not become contaminated from its exterior, rather from its interior, then they defiled it. Furthermore, the seraphim is almagon. Even though we're not really sure that the person is impure, maybe he is impure, maybe he isn't impure. Generally speaking, when we're not sure, we've always said you don't burn truma. Because truma is only food, you're not going to burn it unnecessarily. What do you do? <laughs> you let the truma sit until it becomes defiled. Here, the Rambam makes an exception. And he says, You burn the truma almagon if these people touch this food. Even though its state of impurity is in doubt. They are not trustworthy when it comes to declaring that something is pure. Why not? Not because we suspect them of dishonesty. We suspect them of incompetence. Because they're simply not thoroughly knowledgeable. The fine laws of purity and impurity. And therefore, this simple earth person, farmer, ignorant person is always assumed to be impure. He has no trustworthiness for ritual purity. Until he accepts upon himself the mandate of Chaveros. The word Chaver means a friend. Chaveros means a brotherhood. The scholars, those who were knowledgeable in the laws of purity and impurity, they were called, quote unquote, the special group, the brotherhood. The brotherhood of what? The brotherhood of people knowledgeable in the laws of purity and impurity. Until this ignorant everyday person goes through a course, learns the laws of purity and impurity, takes a test, so to speak, and is ordained to be a chaver, he's now in the brotherhood of purity and impurity, then we can trust him. So there was actually a class distinction. Those who did have that license, those who didn't. What kind of brotherhood of scholarship do they need? What's going on here? It's actually nothing to do with class. It has to do with knowledge. That the person should be conscientious, careful with any matters that are impure. He should not become impure through them. You simply have to know the laws. 
should not maintain ritual purity, that he should not make them defiled. He should not wash his hands. The whole idea of washing hands, which is so commonplace today, is an outgrowth of from holy foods, of and so on. And, their purity, and we haven't even scratched the surface of the laws of purity and impurity of hands. A person should never accept from a non-chover anything with moisture, because moisture is that which readies something to receive impurity. Nor should he accept the invitation to be a guest in someone's house, unless that person has this knowledge. Nor should he invite him to his house while the guy wears his garment. He may be pure, but his garments are impure, and he wouldn't know that he has to immerse his garments in the mikvah. So this is paragraph one. Now, he brings down here in the notes in the Meznaim Rambam that the Rebbe actually discusses this. The point that I mentioned earlier. It's doubtful whether something is impure or not. Why would he burn it? Says the Rebbe. The fact that the Rambam says we should burn it means it's not doubtful. means these laws are complex. So complex that unless somebody really knows the rules and regs, it's impossible to maintain them. Base two. What if somebody says, I'm willing to accept the laws of the brotherhood of purity and impurity. I'm willing to accept the laws of those who know and maintain and observe laws of purity or impurity. Except there's one thing I'm not comfortable with. And the Kabbalah said we don't accept them. Because it's all or nothing. In other words, the person has to show that he is humble and he subjugates himself <coughs> to the halakha, to the Jewish law. If he says, I'll do it all, but not this, this doesn't make sense to me. And truth be told, none of these laws make sense to anybody. These are all divine decrees. Now, what if he knew who we saw this person, we observed him in his own home, and we saw that by and large he is careful and meticulous in the observance of laws of purity and impurity. The Kabbalah said we let accept him as part of this special group of then we give him an intense course of details of purity and impurity because we see he is serious we see he's dedicated to it not that like he doesn't care but if we didn't observe him that privately in his own home he's acting properly with regard to the laws of purity and impurity then first we teach him and then we receive him or to use a modern term then we license him so people were either licensed or not to be trustworthy in laws of purity and impurity the most basic entry-level law has to do with the purity and impurity of hands. So that is always stage one. Once a person learns meticulously to observe purity and impurity of hands, we can accept it for stage one. Then we can accept it for the more complex category of stage two, general laws of purity and impurity. What if a person says, listen, don't push it. I'm only ready for the hand part. That's fine, because that's a good beginning. So we accept him as a chaber for hands. But if he says, I'll accept all the laws of purity and impurity, but I'm not doing the hand thing. We can't even accept him for the general laws, because the hand ritual purity is stage one of stage two. Now, once we accept somebody as part of this special group who know how to maintain ritual purity, when we accept him, we keep an eye on him, we're concerned, for a 30-day period, actually, until he's really thoroughly knowledgeable, and he's well-versed in how to maintain ritual purity, but after 30 days, if he already accepted the responsibilities of being a chaver, of being in the purity and impurity special knowledge group, we can even assume that his garments are pure. We can even assume that all his food and drink are pure. He's now trustworthy for all matters of purity and impurity. Like all other members of this special group who are licensed, because we know they know the laws and are able to maintain the laws and are devoted to maintain the laws of purity and impurity. This really has nothing to do with scholarship. The person doesn't have to be a general scholar. The person just has to be well-trained in this aspect of Torah law. Just to point out something I pointed out many times, we talk about the Mishnah, and we have the six orders of the Mishnah, Shisha, Sidre, Mishnah, upon which Rambam and all other halacha is based. One-sixth of the Mishnah has to do with purity and impurity. So there are so many laws. And, of course, we are going through a very complex book of laws of purity and impurity. Gimel, Tamidei Chachamim, when there are people who are established as Torah scholars, we can assume if a person is a scholar, they're going to maintain ritual purity. Nemonim, they are reliable, they're credible. They don't need a formal acceptance of being in this special group. Once the Holy Temple was destroyed, and ritual purity was narrowed because there is no base on the law. So what is the relevance? It's primarily to Truma and so on. The Kohenim took an additional measure of strictness and stringency. They shouldn't give over the state of being credible for purity. Even the Torah scholars, until they go to a formal acceptance of knowing how to do this and accepting to do this. Because when there was a base on English, we can assume that every scholar knew what he was doing. Once the base on English is gone, then it was not so relevant, so not every scholar would necessarily know what he's doing. However, if someone is an elder, sage, 
and he's a member of the Talmudic Academy, he's a scholar, and it's a that person does not require formal acceptance. The fact that he became an elder sage, and he is in graduate school, so to speak, he's a full-time scholar, obviously he knows what he's doing. Now, it's very nice that the chaber, that the scholar, the sage, knows what he's doing. However, what about his wife? What about his children? What about his employees, who back then were avodim, who were servants? So we're going to learn that when someone is assumed to be a chaber, Part of that assumption is that his wife is also knowledgeable, that his children are knowledgeable, that his servants are knowledgeable, that he implemented ritual purity standards in his home. That's part of the assumption. So they don't need separate tests. It's the household. Hey, five, I'm a Kabbalah, Yibre when somebody officially, formally accepts this responsibility of being a Chaber, being knowledgeable, and observant of the laws of purity and impurity. So it's actually a, a fairly official process where he has to stand up in front of three members of this group and say, I do declare that I am a chover. But his children and his household do not have to make this declaration. Why? Because we assume that he teaches them. And he trains them in the ways of purity. What about his wife? His children, his household, and his servants. We assume that they are of the status of a chover. Because that's his household. A person is responsible to maintain the level of his household. It's like you walk into a Torah scholar's house. Can you assume the house is kosher? We sure hope so. You can't say, oh, he's a scholar, but we don't know about his kitchen. His wife, his children, and his household have the assumption of being a chaver until they don't, until they did something that will lose that privilege. What about the wife of an ignorant person? Or the daughter of an ignorant person? The wife or the daughter got remarried or the daughter got married to a Torah scholar. So you automatically become a Torah scholar when you marry a Torah scholar. You know what they, I always like to say? How do you become a rabbi? You marry a rabbi. That's how you become a rabbi. So, <laughs> that's a joke, but it's not a joke. How do you become the wife of a scholar? You marry a scholar now. So the Wife of an ignorant person who never had this license, or the daughter who married a scholar, or his servant, who was sold in the time of slavery to a chaver, to a knowledgeable person. These are new to the game, so they have to accept formally this practice. But the wife of a scholar, a bitter daughter, who married a regular guy, his servant, who was sold to a ignorant person, they don't have to again accept it because they were raised in it, because they grew up with it, because they're used to it. Zayin Amhar is what if an ignorant person or a person of the earth, a mundane person, a non-scholar, Shachibal Allah Dibikhabeus who accepted upon himself to be a chaber, to be observant and knowledgeable in the laws of purity and impurity, and he had objects which he considers pure, Shishahoya Amhar from the olden days, before he was licensed. The Yomar and he said on the day, I know Vadai for sure, Shalinitmu that these objects were never defiled, and now I have a license. If others dealt with this, others were involved with them, they are forbidden. But if only he occupied himself with them, then he may use them, because he's the person who dealt with them, and he knows it was good. However, Basaru, Basaru is still forbidden to everybody else, because the fact that he trusts himself before his license doesn't affect us trusting him before his license. A scholar may be asked about his pure items, and he can decide the law of purity or impurity of the facts for his own self. A person should not be suspected of subjectivity. How can he rule on his own? Yes, he can rule on his own items. We're not concerned. Ches 8. Now we have a situation where a person who was licensed to be reliable in laws of purity and impurity. This person became a tax collector or a customs duty collector for the king. And whenever we talk about this kind of subject, the commentary is always explained based upon the oral law. We're not talking about somebody who works in the IRS. We're talking about somebody who would pay the king a certain large amount of money and buy the right to collect taxes in a certain zip code. And then that person would oppress the locals and would just squeeze as much as they could. That's how he made his profit. These guys were bad guys. They were not hired by the IRS. They were working for themselves. So our sages had a great disdain for them. Needless to say, if you're persecuting people, hardworking people, you can't be trusted for purity and impurity. That's what he says now. This Chaber, who became a god by the Melech, or a Moser, this kind of tax collector, where he oppresses people, then they 
renounce his right to be trustworthy with purity and impurity laws. What if he stepped away from his evil ways? He decided to change his evil ways. Then he becomes a regular person. But he has to go through an acceptance procedure once again. Test 9. What if a non-scholar accepted to be a chaver? He went through the training and the test. And then somebody was suspicious because they caught him doing something that was not 100%, but just in a narrow vein. Then we should not trust, on, trust him for this narrow act. However, the rule is, when you suspect somebody for a more severe act, you should certainly suspect him for a less severe act because it has to do with how God-fearing the person is. But if the person is only suspect for a less severe transgression, we don't suspect him for a more severe transgression. Yud 10. Now, the Rambam tells us an interesting law, which in a sense we learned a similar law earlier when it comes to kosher. If a butcher sold non-kosher meat, which was presumed to be kosher. So here the butcher is immediately removed from his position. And he cannot regain credibility until he goes to a place, quote, where his identity is not recognized and finds a large, valuable lost item or, and returns it, or he slaughters an animal for himself, answering to nobody. And he says, whoops, this is not kosher, suffering the loss. That's a sign that he's truly repentant. Other than that, we can't just begin to trust him just because he says, I'm very sorry. We have a similar law here with purity and impurity. You is a licensed person who is trained and trustworthy with questions of purity and impurity. And now he is suspect. Again, for example, he's he sold defiled foods under the label that they're kosher. This person can never again be believed because he betrayed his trust. Until we ascertain, as I just explained in the introduction, which we learned in the kosher laws, until it becomes known, that he is totally and completely repented. Closing paragraph of chapter 10. Somebody who is suspect with regard to the violation of the laws of the sabbatical year, or someone who is suspect regarding the laws of the Kohen food, where he went and sold these special holy foods as mundane everyday foods. This is a terrible violation. He's also suspect on the purity and impurity laws. We suspect he's going to sell impure food as pure food. Now, we learned earlier, we're going to learn in the next chapter, we need to establish a certain assumption that it is beneficial to a person to maintain ritual purity because business is better. When somebody maintains ritual purity, he'll have a better client base. Because he can have the ritual pure customers as well. However, if he cheats, he loses that right. So when somebody is suspect because he was caught selling sabbatical year food or calling food as regular food, then we surely cannot trust them for purity and impurity. Because many of the purity and impurity laws are merely rabbinic conjunctions. The sabbatical year and truma law, many of them are biblical. You can't trust someone for a biblical law. You certainly can't. Uh, if you can't trust someone for a biblical law, you certainly can't trust them for a biblical law because people take rabbinic law that seriously. And the impure foods, they only make others impure rabbinically. As we will explain, anybody who is suspect on something, it doesn't mean he can't testify for someone else about the same object. Or to adjudicate for someone else. And here comes an interesting law where the Rambam tells us, and we've learned this in the past, there's a safe assumption, says the Rambam. I just lost my place for a second. That a person will not sin in order that others should benefit. We're not going to assume that a guy's going to lie for someone else just because he was dishonest for himself. Therefore, although for himself he lost credibility, but he can still testify and adjudicate when it comes to someone else. <coughs> and this statement is discussed. The disagrees with it. Others have a problem with it. But this is the Rambam's interpretation from the oral law. End of chapter 10. Rambam and Mishnah Torah, Hilchais Metame, Mishka Bumosha, the laws of defilement of objects that are laid upon and sat upon and all the other Connecting laws, chapter 11, this picks up from chapter 10, where we talked about the fact that there was special education given to people that they know how to maintain ritual purity, and the average farmer, the average everyday person who was devoted to making a living, did not necessarily have the credibility to maintain ritual purity in later days of the second base on English. Aleph 1, Kvarbeyan, we've already explained, <coughs> that when it comes to very severe laws of ritual purity and impurity, is that even ignorant people, Nehmonim, are trustworthy, they are credible. They're trustworthy. For example, on the purity and impurity laws of the red heifer. The red heifer is such a severe law that we're not going to suspect even an ignorant person that they would do something dishonest. If they don't know, they're going to ask. Why? Because it is so severe. The red heifer, whoa, everybody's afraid of it. No one would act lightly with red heifer laws. 
So also we've established earlier, Namonim, that even ignorant, everyday people who are not licensed for, law, for purity and impurity laws are credible and trustworthy. Namonim, they are credible. When it comes to the maintenance of ritual purity of wine and oil, of wine and oil libations, meaning these objects that are going to be offered in the Holy Temple. No person is going to have the brazenness or the audacity to act improperly when it comes to something they're about to offer on the altar. They're afraid. So therefore, ignorant or not, licensed or not, for these severe experiences such as red heifer-related stuff or sacrifice-related stuff, everyone is credible. If anybody said it's pure as long as the person is honest, even though he may not be knowledgeable, we have to assume that he's checked it out and it maintains real ritual purity. He has maintained real ritual purity. Why? Because of the severity of it. These are biblical precepts that the world stands on. Even these people will be careful and meticulously cautious. Even though they don't know, they'll find out. Furthermore, our sages also instituted, and this is the subject matter here of this chapter, that everybody will be reliable. They will be reliable for truma-related laws. That's the heap offering that's set aside for the Kohen. During the season when wine presses and olive vats are active, we have to assume that the wine was pressed and the olives were pressed, maintaining ritual purity laws so that the Kohen can actually take his truma. Because otherwise the Kohen would not be able to take his truma because it became defiled. So we have to assume that the farmer knows what he's doing in his wine press and in his olive vat uh, factory. Because our sages have made an assumption that everyone purifies themselves and their utensils in order to produce their wine and their oils in a state of ritual purity. So during the season, our sages did not declare this special rule of don't trust the unlicensed. However, that's the way the commentaries explain it. Not that the law changes, but that this decree was not placed in season. However, if the wine press season and the olive season passed, it's out of season, they lose their credibility because now they're not interested in maintaining ritual purity. And as I touched upon in the earlier chapter, it's better for business to maintain ritual purity. As he says here in the note, for doing so is much more worthwhile financially. Therefore, we're going to assume that they want their produce to be established as ritually pure. Otherwise, they're going to lose a big client base. Bays, now comes the situation where Kohen, Shehebi Le'ama if there was a Kohen, an ignorant person delivered to this Kohen, Yayin, wine, a shaman, or oil, shall truma of truma, out of season. If it's in season, it's not a problem. We just learned that. In paragraph one, it's out of season. We should not accept it. The Kohen should not accept it. The Kohen has to say, no, thank you. I really can't accept this from you. I'm not sure of its ritual purity. It's out of season. Because it's out of season, we have to assume that it's impure. However, this is a fascinating law. If the simple person left this in his own domain, until the next season, they brought it to the coin, it was last season's truma. Now, the, the rabbinic decree does not apply in season. So now he can accept it, even though everybody knows it's last year. He knows it's last year's produce. This is the key here. The rabbinic decree does not apply in the season of wine press and olive vat. So if the rabbinic decree doesn't apply, who cares if it was last season? There is no rabbinic decree. So here we see, as we're developing these laws, and the Rambam, it's fantastic, that this has to do with what the rules are rather than what the reality is. Because the reality follows the rules. Gimel, next situation. Am if an ignorant, unlicensed person, a farmer, who's not scholarly, not licensed for purity and impurity, he actually locked up and shut down his wine press or olivat. When people finished doing the wine pressing and the olivating, he just locked up house. He says, that's it, it's closed. And he went and delivered the key to the Kohen. He says, here, Mr. Kohen, here's the key. You are going to be the guarantor that no one's going to go and defile that winepress area, that olive area. And the Kohen accepted the key. So now nobody has entry. Even though it's now several days, or the commentary say, several weeks or several months. After season, it's been locked down all these days, or all these weeks, or all these months. Nevertheless, Halacha says, as the Rambam, the Kohen can come along, and can open it in front of the farmer. Umadbila, he can supervise the farmer's immersion in a mikvah, which removes him from a state of ritual impurity other than death. When it comes to death, of course, we have the red heifer laws. We're not talking about death. We're talking about zob and zobo and so on and so forth. Everyday impurity. Now he can process and produce truma in a state of purity. Why? Now, because he gave the coin the key, and we're not going to assume that he called the locksmith behind the 
or we have another key. We, we have to assume basic honesty. But if he didn't block it up, shut it down and give the Kohen the key, the Kohen should not accept Kohen food from a person who's not licensed to be a Chodr, only dry olives and dry grapes, which have never become moistened, so they can't accept biblically impurity, where they cannot accept impurity, but according to rabbinical law, they do, so whatever. Dalid, for Hebi, next scenario, the ignorant person, the not unlicensed, Chodr. The regular guy comes to the Kohen, and he says, here is Truma, it's not wine press or olive that season, otherwise he'd be reliable, he'd be believed, it's out of season. Yomar, and here, this simple guy made a declaration to the Kohen. And we learned many, many of these laws, similar laws earlier, in various categories. So, those of you who have been studying with us, with us up to now will have a better understanding. Those of you who are new to this will have to struggle a little bit. But what he's saying is, In this barrel of Truma, I have set aside some sacred food for the Holy Temple. In this barrel of Truma, there is some Holy Temple food. Commentaries immediately explain. Obviously, it doesn't mean that he set aside something in this barrel for Holy Temple, because then the whole thing would be forbidden, because there's Holy Temple food mixed up with regular food. It means he made a declaration, the food that I will set aside is holy. And that's the system that we learned repeatedly, that this was an accepted system, where you say the food that I will set aside, and it's taken care of. I feel the Rebbe is, even if it's only a limited small amount, called the Rebbe is a quarter of a lug. Because Halacha says he has credibility with regard to the sanctity of this little holy amount, he now has credibility for the whole barrel. I feel the even during the Season, when ignorant people are believed, this is the next law. Even during the season when ignorant people are believed, they are not believed. I'm sorry. Let's go back again. Even during the season when people are believed because it's wine press season or Alabat season, where the ignorant people are trustworthy when it comes to Truma. Now comes the Rambam and tells us to do Halacha. They do not have credibility to take an empty vessel and say, I declare that this has maintained ritual purity. We can now use this for Truma. Because the decree did not apply to them in season for Truma, but the decree was not removed for empty vessels. For empty vessels, we need a chodr to declare it. And so also, they never believe when it comes to empty vessels, that it's pure for holy matters of sacrifice. They simply were not given that license. Hey, five. Clear vessel, which had within it wine, a shaman or oil. And we saw a regular person, Yeshiv sitting on the shaman guarding it. His intent was to use it for wine libation or oil libation. We learned earlier that a simple person has credibility for wine and oil libation, and we see that that's what he's doing. In that case, this person is trustworthy to say that the vessel is pure. Even if it's out of season, even though it's 70 days prior to season, which is a long time, over two months. Ah, okay, no, but more than 70 days. They're not trustworthy. When does this apply? The Rambam now qualifies. Mishad, Eretz Yisrael, and the rest of Israel. When it comes to the Yerushalayim, where the sacrifices are brought, Yerushalayim has a different law. They are believed even for earthenware empty vessels. That's pure all year round at all times. There's a special law that in Jerusalem there's more credibility all year round for earthenware vessels. Whether it's fine vessels or thicker vessels. Full or empty, even for the vessel. Even though sometimes we have to assume that the liquid in it is pure, because that's what the law says, is impure. Sometimes we have to assume that the liquid is defiled, because they are not a chaver. I feel like a big midras, even if his garment is assumed to be impure, because somebody impure stepped on it. And it's there in this earthenware vessel. Because it's in Jerusalem, and it's earthenware, the law says we have to assume it's pure. Why? Why is the law so lenient with regard to earthenware vessels in Jerusalem? It has to do with the environment. It has to do with toxic waste. Because there was a decree that we should not build kilns, factories, to produce earthenware containers in Jerusalem, so that it not cause the city to become filled with smoke. We didn't want to cause the city to be dirtied and to be smoked up. And therefore, our sages had to legislate certain leniencies when it came to earthenware vessels, because you couldn't buy an earthenware vessel produced in Jerusalem, because they didn't have the factories. There was a zoning ordinance against it. Now, not only was there leniency in Jerusalem, but between the place called Medias, or other say Modin. 
which is a famous Hanukkah city, and closer Nemonium people have trustworthiness al with regard to earthenware vessels, so that our sages institute a leniency even around Jerusalem, as close as Modin, which is about 15 kilometers away from Jerusalem. from Modin and outside and further The person does not have credibility to say my earthenware vessel is pure. but Modin itself. Sometimes it's considered outside the area, and it's not trustworthy. Sometimes it's considered in the area, and the person is trustworthy. Case for example, a licensed chaver entered. What if an unlicensed ignorant person is leaving? And he has an earthenware vessel. Can the scholar take it from the ignorant person? Yes, he can say, here, take my vessel, it's good. But if they're both entering, they're both leaving, it has to be inside the wall. Zion Keder, what if a potter, that's what he does for a living, he's a potter. He bought pots, and he left them, and he inside the boundary of that 15 kilometer space. And buyers came, and he says, they are pure. It maintains ritual purity for holy matters. But not for truma. It should be honored that truma has a stricter law. He took a pot. He also bought from Medias and he went outside the Modin 15 kilometer area. And he's a tumea. It's considered impure. Whether for sacrifices or truma, because it's outside that 15 kilometer area. Even though it's the same pots and the same potter, just a few minutes ago you trusted him because he was in the area. Now he's out of the area. Out of the area, the decree applies. In the area, the decree does not apply. It's only reliable inside Modin and closer to Jerusalem. What if somebody goes to a producer and he buys an earthenware vessel out of the kiln anywhere? These are assumed pure. Main location, whether for holy objects such as sacrifices, being the truma or going food. and we are not suspect. We don't say Perhaps an ignorant person touched him. Who knows? Maybe the customer before me was an ignorant person. And he was impure, and he looked at it to see if he likes it. I feel like I'm going to say the even if he bought from the front row, which was probably handled by someone. Even though this kiln is wide open and half the stuff is gone, obviously it's been handled. The bottom line is that this decree was never instituted with stuff in the kiln, so the decree does not apply. Here we see another example of halacha creates reality. Law creates reality. Now the Rambam tells us another fantastic law. During the holiday season, we're talking about Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot, when people come Ole Regel to visit Jerusalem, and people come in throngs. The impurity of an ignorant person is considered pure during that season. Why? Because every Jew is considered as a licensed scholar during the festival. He knows if the festival is going to act his best. All their vessels, and their food, and their liquids, to hate them are considered pure, but regular over the holiday. Because everybody purified themselves. Everybody would go to Jerusalem. Everybody knew how to behave, to purify and prepare themselves properly. They are trustworthy, they're credible. All the days of the festival are Kedish, for all holy things, for holy things, once the holiday season passes, the same objects revert to their state of impurity, because suddenly the decree applies. And this is a difficult concept to understand, how the same object would revert. And uh, the Rebbe talks about this in his interpretation, and the Rebbe talks about the fact that over the holiday, the Jewish people are referred to as a collective body. Therefore, everybody's pure. After the holiday, we go back and look at people as individuals. Yud, 10. If somebody opens his barrel on the festival, and then somebody also begins his dough, begins consuming his dough, selling his dough, and then the festival passes. During the festival, everything is considered pure. Now it's after the festival. The balance of the festival is the balance of the dough. The must be assumed impure. Because ignorant people touched it. Even though they only touched it during the holiday festival when they're all considered licensed people who know purity from impurity. This application of purity for everyone only applies during the festival season. Once the festival season passes on the calendar, that leniency is gone. Fantastic law. Now the Rambam tells us something very interesting. We had so many people go through the base on English. Area over the festival, after the festival, right after the holiday, wherever possible, they took all the utensils in the Besam Dikdash, would immerse them in the mikvah. They do a cleansing, a whole self cleansing. Why? Because so many people who don't really know how to maintain ritual purity touch them during the festival. Now the festival is over. So now they need to be immersed, even though during the festival they were assumed okay. And therefore, people were always fascinated with the showbread table. People wanted to see the miracle of the showbread table, how the bread maintained its freshness all week. How you would always admonish and warn the people and telling them, don't touch the table. 
And they showed it to the visitors over the holiday. In order that the whole golden showbread table should not take on impurity after the holiday. And then it would require to be immersed in the head of Shemesh and they couldn't do anything with it until the sunset. And that's a problem because then the showbread would not be functional that period. The Torah tells us with regard to the showbread, it must be before me always, continually. Therefore, instead of immersing this, they just kept people away from it. There was a police line, do not cross. All of the utensils in the base of English required immersion and required to wait until sunset. The exception is that golden altar, and obviously the brass altar, which was attached to the ground, it was massive, it was impossible that they should see because the metal which covers them was actually nullified to the wood, which doesn't take on impurity. The Rambam explains in Kalim chapter 11 4 that plated utensils do not contract impurity, and we'll talk about it later. Yud base, Amhar, it's a regular unlicensed chalder, a regular person. Shabbat said, I am pure, I have not exposed myself to any corpse or death. I don't need the application of the red heifer, which was applied on day three and day seven of the counting. This utensil is pure from exposure to death. Naaman, he's trustworthy. We don't have to force him to go through the seven-day process of the red heifer ritual. We simply cause him to enter into a mikvah. People always entered into a mikvah before they went to the base of Nigesh. That's why they went all around the base of Nigesh. But Sarah had a shemesh and he needed to wait until the sun sets. Then it's our hazard, but we did not require him to be sprinkled with the application of the red heifer. But then, when does When he was asked, are you impure? Do you have any death exposure? But if somebody just buys a utensil from the domain of a simple ignorant person, so we do have to be suspect. Maybe this was exposed to the impurity of a corpse. Because we don't know. We haven't asked. And we do do the ritual of the red heifer. And we sprinkle from this mixture as we learn in great detail because we learn the laws of red heifer. On day three and day seven, like all other utensils that are found anywhere, outside of Jerusalem, before anything entered Jerusalem, this application was done. The reason Jerusalem is different because our sages did not make the decree for utensils in Jerusalem. As we will explain when we enter into great detail with the laws of impurity when there's doubt. And those are very complex laws coming up. End of chapter 11. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais, the laws of Mitame. Those who can defile through Mishkab or Moshab, through application upon objects which people usually lie on or, or sit on, <clears throat> and we're learning the various details. And we're winding down, we're up to chapter 12 of 13. <clears throat> In order to properly understand the flow here, I want to point out several factors which we've already established. Factor number one, that when someone is in a state of impurity because of the categories <clears throat> that we talked about before, at the very beginning of chapter one, Zov, Zova, male or female with an abnormal flow, Nida, a woman with a normal menstrual flow, Yeldes, a woman who gives birth, then they bring about defilement in many ways. And primarily, we learned that the ways have to do, I'm just uh, finding the beginning here, the ways have to do with touching utensils, contaminating man with touching and carrying, and cots and chairs and saddles, <clears throat> simply by putting pressure on them, and converts all of them into a primary source of impurity. That's one point we learned. And therefore, ritual purity and maintaining it was a difficult challenge during the time that the Beis stood. Because any time anyone had any one of these forms of impurity, then he, that person, he or she, could spread that impurity in the most simple manner. And then there's another point we learned in more recent chapters, and that is that as time went on and people became less knowledgeable and less observant perhaps, they developed a concept with regard to purity and impurity called Amhoris. And that is someone who's simply ignorant, compared to a Chavert, compared to someone who is a member of the quote-unquote scholarly brotherhood, so to speak. So anyone who was an Amhoretz, who was not learned, was not trustworthy to maintain these complex laws. And in order for someone to establish credibility, they had to take a mini-course, and they had to come before three, so to speak, knowledgeable people who are in the category of Chover, and they had to give them a license, so to speak. You can maintain ritual purity. So therefore, this leads us to the factors described in chapter 12. Anytime someone who is not knowledgeable and not credible to be able to maintain these complex laws, anytime that somebody like that touches something, or in any of the other forms of defilement, that object becomes defiled, and it's a very simple process to defile. You just have to sit on something, or touch something, or lean on something. So therefore, this brings us to the many scenarios of chapter 12. If somebody lets a regular person, a non-scholar, 
take possession of his utensils for whatever reason, to watch them, to fix them, to borrow them. I give somebody anything that belongs to me. Or somebody gives a utensil to a craftsman, and this craftsman is not licensed to be knowledgeable in the laws of purity and impurity. Then the objects become defiled. What kind of defilement? The kind of defilement we've been talking about is a pretty minor defilement. Why? It's not minor. It's an abatuma. It's minor from the perspective of the person just has to immerse in the mikvah, or the object has to be immersed in the mikvah, and you have to wait till sunset. Not that big a deal. There's another problem here. Maybe this person who's not knowledgeable was exposed to a corpse, and therefore he brings about serious seven-day defilement upon your object. And therefore, that object now has to be treated like any other seven-day defiled object. And it has to have the ashes of the ritual of the red heifer applied on the third day of the count. And the seventh day of the count, that's like a whole big deal. This is what he says here. These objects become impure with the level of mace of the defilement of a corpse. And they also become defiled as a migros, something where one of the above categories of zobzobo, nida, and yelendus, put pressure on these or sat on them, so that requires a mikvah immersion as well. These are two separate tracks of impurity, just by giving your toaster to the toaster guy to fix it would be a little bit difficult to immerse a toaster in the mikvah, but that's a whole different ballgame. As long as he shuts off the electricity, he's okay. Furthermore, now he qualifies it and he says, if this person who is not established as a scholar recognizes the person who gave him the item, as a kohen who eats truma, he knows he has to keep extra special sanctity to hate him, mace. They, they therefore will watch and be extra careful. So the object does not take upon itself the impurity of exposure to death, but the lighter impurity of midras, requiring immersion in the mikvah, and waiting until sunset does occur. Why? Because there's such an easy way to bring about midras. Such an easy way. Because every woman who is of age has a menstrual cycle, and simply speaking, the craftsman's wife, Yeshebe Salem, can simply sit down on the object. Without the craftsman knowing about it, because we establish that there is no meticulous concern in the house of a non-licensed cover. So therefore we're concerned that the Christian's wife simply leaned on it or sat on it. Therefore we have to assume that it is Tomei Midras, it requires immersion in a mikvah. We do not have to assume that it was exposed to exposure to death because here you need someone who actually was with a corpse and did not purify himself and that's more unusual. Bays. Now we get into many scenarios. If somebody leaves his utensils with an everyday person, the told him, keep an eye on these things from me. We can assume that they are impure with the impurity called Midras, brought about by the four categories of Zob, Zob, Nida, and Yeletus. But they are not Impure through the exposure to death, which is a much more serious seven-day form of impurity. But if he put it on the guy's shoulder, he loaded it onto the guy's shoulder, then then you have both impurities. Because you can assume that because the guy is directly dealing with it, it comes into his possession, and we have to assume that that an everyday person was exposed to death as well. Now, again, we come into many different scenarios. What if somebody simply left his personal stuff, he left his attache case in shul, in the synagogue, he went out for a bite, he came back, and his personal objects were not being guarded. Who knows who touched them? So he says, we have to assume that they have maintained their purity. Why? Because the synagogue is not a place where just anybody can go and touch anybody's things. There is respect for privacy. And it's not a place where the average person has a full run of the, of the place. People respect the fact that it's a place which is used by many among them scholars. So they have to maintain the purity rules. The basic ABCs of purity. What if, in fact, he left his personal objects in the bathhouse, not in the shul, but in the bathhouse. And he found them exactly as he left them. They appear to be undisturbed. To hate him, we can assume that they are pure. Nevertheless, the person who wants to maintain ritual purity should not leave his objects unguarded in the bathhouse. It's a bad idea. What if he left his vat or his cistern unattended? People used to put wine in their vat and various foods or liquids in their cisterns. Even though he ran into the city. When he came back, he found a non-licensed person. A person not licensed for purity right next to his vat or cistern. To hate him, the vat or cistern are still pure. What we're going to find repeated here, repeatedly in these laws is that by and large, people follow the rules. And one of the main rules of life is the rule of private property. No one will approach someone's private property when they have no permission to do so. The fact that the guy is standing near your vat or cistern doesn't mean he trespassed. What if somebody gave the key of his house to a non-licensed scholar, in other words, to someone who's not reliable, to observe the laws of purity and impurity? So now what's the deal with all the stuff in the house? Does he have to immerse everything in the mikvah? And by the way, back then they used to immerse everything in the mikvah. The fact is that everything in the house maintains ritual purity. Why? He gave him the key. That's the answer. When somebody gives somebody the key to his house, he's telling him to watch the key. He's not giving him access to the house. 
If somebody places his private items in chalain, it's the literal translation of the word chalain, means a window. But the practical translation is they have lockers, like we have today, lockers in a, in a bathhouse, in a spa. They give you a locker. You have a key. locker number nine. Somebody placed his personal objects in the lockers of a spa bathhouse. And he locked his locker. Even though he gave the key to an everyday person, he says, keep an eye on my key. I'm going into the Schmitz. Caleb to his personal objects retain purity. We're not going to assume that this guy invaded the privacy of his locker. So also, if he sealed it or made a sign on it, I feel about Sanchez Mokuko, even if he found the sign or seal broken, we're not going to assume that people are going to invade my private locker. There is respect for private property. Hey, what if somebody left an unlearned person in his house to watch over it? <coughs> and the owner was a distance away. As long as the owner of the house can see, observe even from a distance, those who come and go, everything in the house, food and drink, or earthenware utensils, some apostle not sealed, to me, we have to assume that they're all impure. However, the objects such as cots or saddles or earthenware vessels which are sealed, we're going to have to assume that they retain ritual purity because the only thing a person might have touched is food and drink and open earthenware utensils. A person's not going to go through your bedroom and go on the bed, jump on the bed. But if you can't even from the distance see the people coming and going, then we have to assume that Kael Shabbabai has told me everything that's in the house must be declared impure and must be immersed in a mikvah. That's a big job, by the way. Furthermore, even if the person he left in the house was in a wheelchair or otherwise handicapped, not able to make his way around, Hakel told me it's still defiled. We have to assume <coughs> that even people who are paraplegic have ways of getting around. If they should hang the because he left his objects in the care of someone who simply doesn't know the ins and outs of purity. <coughs> a scholar who is licensed and who is trusted to maintain laws of purity and impurity, who was sleeping in the house of an unlearned person. So now he has the unlearned host <coughs> in the house. You know, sleeping is sleeping. And his own private objects were folded and stored under his head. You see this a lot of times when in an airport. I guess when people's flights are delayed or they have a big stopover, they take their private stuff, they fold it, put it under their head, and they fall asleep. By and large, people in the airport respect people's privacies. That's what I thought of when I learned this. I'm not sure how many airports that I'm going to listen. He has his sandals and his barrel in front of him. We have to assume that people respect people's privacy. So it's all pure. Because we assume that everybody comes, sees that it's being guarded by its owner, even though the owner is sleeping. And a stranger who in our case might be not knowledgeable in the laws of purity and impurity, would not have touched them. Because the person says, Hey, I'm afraid the guy's going to wake up, he's going to see me, and he's going to call 911. Like the fellow says, I want to call 911, but I didn't know the number. What if a regular person asked of a scholar to lend him a bed? A cot, so he could sleep on it. And he slept on it. In the house of the scholar. Then we have to assume that the bed, of course, is impure because the person slept on it. And everything around the bed, as long as the person can reach from the bed, is also impure. As long as he can reach it from that bed, he can touch it. But we don't have to assume that the guy went through the, your whole house and went into every drawer. So only the immediate environment must be repurified to immersion in the mikvah, including the bed. They used to. Immersed beds, the famous Mishnah we conclude when we say Kaddish. He immersed the bed in the mikvah, in the fountain. Ches, chaver, a scholar, shalom al said to a regular person, shmerli parazu, keep an eye on this cow, shalik to connoisseur bias, it shouldn't go into the house. I don't want the cow trashing my house. I shalik to shabbos, I keep an eye on the cow, it shouldn't break all my utensils. I have bias, I can't take it. Should we assume that the ignorant person was watching the cow or the bull, that he went through the guy's house? No. Shalik mosar leyal shmerli sapora, his job was to watch the cow, not to trample the house. He didn't have access to the house. Ah, well, the mama but if he told him shmerli bias, I shalik to connoisseur bias, he said, watch my house. He didn't say watch my cow. He said, keep an eye on my house, that the cow shouldn't enter. The cow may keep an eye on the utensils. Shalik to shabram that he shouldn't break them. And then we have to assume that the guy had access to the house and the utensils, and they're all impure. Test nine, I'm in the house. Where somebody leaves, a regular person, not licensed for purity and impurity laws, in his house, and he goes out. So now the question is, what the guy did? How much of my house did he go through and contaminate with his impurity? Because we have to assume he's impure. 
if the host, who's a scholar, left him awake, or he found him awake, Yoshin, if he left him sleeping, or he came back and he found him sleeping, or he left him awake, or he found him sleeping, we have to assume that everything that's in the house is pure, because he's not going to go and trash somebody's house, he's going to have respect. But if he left him sleeping, or he comes back and he finds him, he's awake, then we have no idea what he did, he woke up. In a different environment. Anything close enough where he can extend his hand and touch becomes defiled. Somebody leaves workers. Craftsmen in, in his house. Then, wherever they can reach from their work spot becomes defiled, but not further. We're not concerned that they climbed up on a chair and touched something higher than the height of a human being. Perhaps they climbed up a ladder and touched the ceiling. They touched utensils that are hanging all the way at the top of the wall. Or foods that are hanging. He didn't touch the salami that was hanging eight feet up. Because the guy was hired to fix a drain. He's working on the drain. He's not climbing walls. Now we come to a different scenario, and again, the problem is more widespread when we're dealing with a woman, because the natural state of a woman is every young woman becomes impure once a month. So all she needs to do is touch something or sit on it during based on English time, and that's a problem. Again, these laws do not apply today, because we don't maintain that level of ritual purity today. The wife of a scholar. And we learned earlier that the wife of a scholar has the same training as her husband, and she is trustworthy to maintain the complex laws of ritual purity and impurity. She not the wife of a regular person. She was grinding flour in her house. She was using the grinder and grinding flour. Even if the grinder stopped working, so you wonder what she was doing after the grinder stopped working. Even if there were two of them, still you only have to assume impurity as far as the hand could reach. We're not going to assume that the woman who came into your house and borrowed your grinder took a full tour and touched everything. We're not going to say maybe one of these women continued to grind and the other trashed the house. Or maybe she climbed up and suspended herself and went up in the high places. You have to assume that people are mentioned, people are decent human beings. You let somebody grind, they'll grind, but they won't uh, climb the walls. When a woman standing at the entrance of her house went in to take out a loaf of bread to give a poor man, poor man knocked on the door, he said, I'm hungry, she went inside to get bread. She came out and she found him. He is standing at the side of all the loaves of bread. The question is, did he touch all the loaves of bread? And he is not licensed to maintain ritual purity. I feel a truma, even if they are truma. This is the house of a Kohen. And they have to maintain a higher form of ritual purity. Still, we have to assume that the breads are pure. Because the assumption is that people do not touch private property without permission. This guy's a poor man, he knocked on the door, she went inside to get him food. He's not going to touch all the loaves of bread near the door. So also, if a woman went out, and when she came back, she found the wife of a simple person stirring the coals that are under her pot. The question is, did she also touch her pot? Did she contaminate her pot? We can assume that the pot is pure. You basically learned earlier about tax collectors who would sign a contract with the king, and then they would oppress the local people because they would get the profits, they would get a certain region. So we said that they're not reliable to observe ritual law because they're not decent people. People who become government tax collectors, again, we're not talking about IRS agents, who work for the government and collect money for the government. These people used to contract with the government to collect money for themselves. <coughs> went in to the house to take security for money that was owed. That's what a government agent can do. <coughs> this guy was a Jew. He may have even once been a licensed scholar, but today, because of what he does, we don't trust him as far as we can throw him. Now the question is, when he went into the house, what did he touch? And what is contaminated in the house? So he says, there's a non-Jew with them on this, in this group. He's going to be embarrassed to lie in front of the non-Jew. Because he's going to be caught. So if he says, I didn't touch anything, I just took this, then he's trustworthy. Because the fear of these non-Jewish people are upon this Jew, and he's not going to lie, maybe he's going to get caught in the lie. When there were witnesses that saw them enter, or the objects in their hand, but they themselves said, listen, we entered into your house, and we took, and we didn't touch anything, we entered, and here comes a very important principle that we're going to be applying again and again. We've also touched upon it in the past. The same mouth. That prohibited is the same mouth that permitted. The same tax collector who said I entered said I didn't touch. Excuse me one second. <laughs> and we hope hot water here. Okay, you deal with 13. Excuse me. Haganobim, what if they were thieves? Thieves could be Jewish and they could spread ritual impurity. We also learned that rabbinically a non-Jew was given the status of a rabbinic impure person by rabbinic law. Thank you. I'm just going to have a sip of tea here. 
So we have a situation where Agonobim, thieves, went into the house. Now the question is not what they stole and what they didn't steal, that's for a different section of Rambam. The question is what they defiled and what they didn't defile, for ritual law. Ain't Tome, Elamok, and Agonobim, wherever their feet treaded upon or trod upon, that's what was contaminated. Because they're afraid to search throughout the entire house. I think this means that they're very limited with time. They don't have a lot of time. They have to go in and out. Therefore, they don't have a time to search the entire house. They only take that which they can brave and go. Why do they contaminate wherever they went? I'm sorry, what do they contaminate where they went? The first thing is, food and drink, or open, earthenware vessels, which are the easiest to contaminate. But cots and chairs, or earthenware vessels, which are sealed to hate and maintain ritual purity, because we're not going to assume that they lay down, and they climbed on, and they sat, and so on and so forth, all of the forms of meters we talked about earlier. However, that's if these were male Jewish thieves. But if there is a non-Jew, by rabbinic law, a non-Jew is considered rabbinically azov, so whatever he touches becomes impure. A Yishor, there is a woman, we have to assume that she could very well be in a nida state, and whatever she touches immediately becomes impure if she doesn't maintain the laws of ritual purity. Then everything is impure. Again, we're talking about situations where, beyond the person's knowledge, what becomes impure because somebody trespassed. What if there were tax collectors described before, or thieves described before, who repented, and they came and returned certain objects, not because they were caught by legal authorities, but because they felt guilty Beyond when they said, as they were returning items which they forcibly took or stole. They also said, by the way, I know you're concerned with ritual impurity. We didn't touch anything. Being that they are returning objects, they are now trustworthy. Even the places where they tried upon, if they make a statement, we can believe them. Somebody leaves their house open. And they found it open. They found it locked. Or found it locked. And there's nothing missing. Because there's nothing missing. We have to assume that everything is. Because I say, how did the lie? Maybe the thief. I say, maybe the thieves opened it, and then maybe something happened which caused them to change their mind, and they took off. The proof is there's nothing missing. What if a hatchet, an axe, a hatchet is lost in the house? Or it was left in one corner. He knows he always keeps his hatchet in the southeast corner. Or he found it in the southwest corner of his house. We have to assume that the entire house and everything in it is now impure. Because I say, perhaps a person who was ritually impure entered there, took the axe, the hatchet, then returned it, and during this tour, contaminated everything. Somebody dwells with a non-licensed scholar, licensed for someone not licensed for purity in the same courtyard. People used to share four, five, six people used to share one courtyard, like a, an apartment house today or a condominium complex, which opened up into one area. And he forgot utensils in the courtyard, and therefore a non-licensed, a non-licensed person for ritual purity had access to the stuff. Even if there were barrels which were sealed, a or an oven which was sealed, had a because. Regular people had access to it. We have to assume that everything was defiled. Actually, Unless there was a fence, even only ten him high, not very high, but it's a fence that marks privacy. It's a demarcation of privacy. That will take it out of the domain of a regular person. What if a scholar had a wall separating a fence, separating or he had a booth prior to the doorway of a regular person? Or the separation or booth of a regular person was before the doorway of the scholar. Then the utensils in the separation or in the Booth are impure. Because the regular person has access, has the right of access. Now comes a situation where the roof of the scholar is above the roof of the regular guy. So the question is, will the regular guy reach up to the roof of the scholar and contaminate his objects? The scholar can spread out, lay out utensils there on the authorities, and he can leave things that he assumes are pure, that he wants to maintain purity, and they will retain their assumption of purity. Even though the regular guy could extend his hand up and stretch and go to the roof of the scholar, because we're going to assume he doesn't. It's an invasion. It's trespassing private property. So also with a non-Jew, one does need not to be suspicious. Because of impurity, or contamination of wine, because, simply speaking, people respect boundaries. If the roofs, however, were adjacent one to another, or the everyday person's roof was higher 
And now the scholar spread forth utensils or left pure things, and his roof, which is lower than the regular guys, every place where the simple everyday guy could extend his hand to and touch becomes impure. Because when we talk about lower, maybe he can say, My object fell down. Things fall down, they don't fall up. Unless they have helium, then they fall up. Two courtyards, one within the other. The inner one belongs to the scholar, and the outer one. Shalom to the everyday guy. The scholar can leave utensils there. can spread out fruits. Even though the hand of the everyday guy can reach there, because if the scholar finds the everyday guy stretching his hand forth into private property, he'll accuse him of being a thief. And nobody wants to be accused of being a thief. A courtyard is divided, he translates here, by a lattice work barrier, a barrier of lattice work. There's a scholar on one side of the barrier, an ignorant person on the other side. The question is, lattice barrier is very easy to get through. Does that count? Tares of Tehidus, the scholar's pure objects retain purity. Even though the hands of the simple person can reach through, because that lattice barrier is a demarcation of private property. People respect private property. That's the principle throughout. Working our way to the end now. 22 of 23. What if a scholar was <coughs> drawing water out of the pit of a regular person and his pail slipped and fell into the well? He went to bring a tool or a rod to draw it out. He's gone, and his pail is in someone else's well. And that person is not licensed for ritual purity. He has to assume that his pail is now impure. Even though, how would the other guy get to the pail? It's deep in the well. That doesn't matter. It's domain. Because he left it in the full domain, dominion of the everyday guy, even for a short time. 23, the closing paragraph of our chapter. And I want to just point out that the next chapter is the end of this section, which will mark about halfway through the laws of purity and impurity. The wife of an everyday regular person. Who entered the Seychelles into the house of a scholar. Her job was she went to pick up his son, take him to the park or whatever. A beater, his daughter, a behemter, she went to pick up his animal. That was her purpose of entry. The question is, while she entered, did she defile everything else? The rule is that everything in the... Because she entered without permission. I guess she entered without permission to do anything else other than pick up the child or the animal. That's what I think the meaning is here, but I'm not sure. What if a potter, a guy who sells, who creates and sells pots, who took his pots and brought them in, linked her to sell them, he left his pot, he left his pots, his display of pots, and he went to buy a Diet Coke. You think they had Diet Coke at the time of the Rambam? Probably. The inner pots maintain ritual purity, but the outer row of pots today is become impure because we can assume that all kinds of clients went and chick shock they looked at the outer row of pots because it's for sale, not trespassing. If it was close to public property, so everybody feels comfortable, because people pass by, passers by, can touch the outer row just as they go. If they were at a safe distance, from public property. If he was carrying the tools of his trade in his hand, then we have to assume that everything is impure. Because anybody who sees him sees he has the tools of his trade. Whatever that is, he has a credit card processor, he has a, a money box, or whatever it is. But but if he doesn't have his objects of trade with him, visible to all, we have to assume that everything is pure, because no one will violate private property, and it's not on the main road. We can safely assume that people didn't touch it. What if a scholar, licensed for rules of impurity and impurity, so he has to maintain it, left his own food and drink at the entry of his store, and he entered? He left his tuna fish sandwich and Diet Coke at the entry. We have to assume that these have now become defiled. As we will learn, food and drink is of the easiest objects to become defiled. We have to assume that everybody who went in and out of the store touched it when you see what it is and so on and so forth. So, this is the last halacha, end of chapter 12.